0: Hey guys, welcome to a drama diving. Uh, we have a special guest. He is uh, a repeat from previously, but, uh, some things have happened recently that he, uh, put out, uh, and we wanted to get a chance to talk to him about it. Uh, just worked out that it's our second one during the week. Uh, as always, we appreciate your guys' time, especially on a beautiful day, at least where it is by us, a beautiful day like today. So, uh, I would like to welcome Gareth Locke from The Human Diver and the most recent uh, edition, if only. So I'm going to bring Gareth
1: in here. Hey, Gareth, how are we doing? Good. Good. Thanks very much, Jason. Good, good to see you this evening. Yeah.
0: Nice to see you too. Uh, so how you been? How are things since we last checked in with you?
1: Pretty busy, um, yeah. both with Human Diver stuff and other other work that I'm doing. Um, I was insanely busy at the start of this week putting stuff together for the launch of If Only on Wednesday. Um, I didn't finish the workbook until uh, on the Tuesday night and <laughs> sent that out to my students. So, uh, so that was really good. Um, and and it's the, the the classic bit that uh, that the activity fills the time available and some more. Uh-huh. So uh, so that was that was really good. And the sort of feedback from the film has has been fantastic. Uh, we've got about uh, eight thousand views on Vimeo. And uh, there's about six thousand views on the human diver webpage as well. So it, it's gone well, and, and the wishes and the thoughts and everything that's come back has been has been really positive. So uh, that that was really what the goal was: is to create that, create a learning environment, which we'll we'll explore a bit further tonight.
0: Good. Um... Yeah. It seems like you've kind of created a whole whirlwind for yourself with this thing hitting off. And then you've been on all sorts of shows since then and going through all, all the class that I'm in that I haven't been as active as I had hoped. But uh, yeah, it seems like you've been pretty crazy since Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: yeah, definitely. And, and, and prepping for Monday night, which is the final night of, of this session as well. So and it's a shame you're not there. And but the good yeah. thing is that, you know, with all of the classes that I run, they're all recorded materials and, and people yeah. get to keep them for good. So that that's been good. And, and the engagement has been with the students on the classes I've been running has been really good as well. Just trying to influence people's thought process. I can't say mm-hmm. I'm going to change them because you own that change process. Um, but I can certainly give you plenty of stuff to think about. Um, and, and I think that's been been really good. Um And and looking at things differently generally is is that Uh whole sort of the the training process is to look at incidents and accidents differently, to think about how we can prevent them by applying those same skills and knowledge that that healthcare started to adopt more. Aviation has been going for the last 50 years. The nuclear industry is sort of similar period as well. So it's um, it's trying to repackage it and reframe it and rephrase the stuff, translate it into diving language so that uh so that people go all right actually this does apply to me Uh it's not just some airy fairy theory that uh that people just go no 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 that's 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 not applicable to me because i don't make mistakes or i i you know uh, it's okay i don't don't need to know about this stuff and yet when we start telling these stories people go oh yeah i've had one of those Uh and i've done that and i wish i'd said that so Uh that's been has been fantastic uh, from that perspective so
0: yeah i just had i've been having the conversation being at the hospital and talking about checklists and using them and all that and there if you were like well so you tell me i need to do a checklist or something i've been doing it in 20 years and i was like well you kind of are when we chart you use a checklist they're like oh I'm like yeah, yeah Have you ever gone to chart about the alarm and then gone back and plugged it in because you missed it there's your checklist it's just not in your hand while you're doing it they're like oh i see I'm yeah. like yeah so there's other ones we could make isn't there they're like Maybe there
1: is, like, yeah, okay. I know, and and the problem is, you also what happens is people think that checklists are the panacea, and so you end up with checklists, four checklists, four checklists. Oh, yeah. Like, no, no, and and healthcare is terrible for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's about designing those checklists for the the operating and the social environment that they should be memory prompts for skills that have been acquired. They shouldn't be um, about a compliance-based tool that says at the end of the shift or the end of the week they bring in the checklists and count how many ticks ticks are in the boxes. Um, Because what will happen then is people will just change their behaviours. They know what they're being rewarded for. They know what they're being punished for. So they'll just tick the boxes and they'll hand over the form. (laughs) And there's no guarantee that the activity associated with that checklist has actually been carried out. Right. Um, so, and and I can, you know, you're sort of nodding going, yeah, been there. I know what that's yeah. like. Yeah. yeah, it's gotta be valuable, right? So it's gotta be something that's worthwhile, so. Definitely. Um,
0: before we get into if only, we had mentioned kind of the classes that are going on. Yeah, um, sure. What's the class that you're finishing up? And what's the class you're starting next week?
1: So I've got a 10 uh, a week webinar based series um, this one that, uh, that, that Jason's on finishes on Monday, that's the 10th session. And that's really to wrap up all of the theory, um, and then get people to set some goals and own the improvement process. Um, and I will follow up afterwards, uh, with some emails that basically says, you know, for the next couple of months, two, three months, I'm going to send you little prompting emails to say, you know, those goals that you said you were going to do, how are you getting on? Uh, and, and little snippets of information to help you. Yep. And then the next class start, starts on the 1st of June. Um, and that's seven o'clock in the evening, UK time. But again, the, the programs are recorded. It's great if you can be there. Uh, we've got about 20 slots left. Uh, there's 30 slots already gone. So that's, uh, you know, a cap it at that because I know that not everybody can make the sessions. Uh-huh. And then we have a, um, an in, you know, each of the evening sessions or day, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. is about 60 minutes of theory and discussion and about 30 minutes of interaction and Q&A. And that's changed as I've evolved the program, instead of being all of the the engagement at the end, it's actually spaced out. So we keep the topics on on target Uh, and it's about you as the students owning this. Um, So I'm gonna paste the link for that into the chat. Well, in fact, I can't. So I call, I'll do, it. I can send it to you and yeah. you can paste it. There we go. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed it. I mean, like I said, I, you know, we had talked previously before we got started. I, I got so busy on Mondays working at the hospital that my all intentions were to be there every single week. And I'm really glad they're recorded because I ended up missing a lot because of what was going yeah. on. So um, it is what it is. But.
1: And so there's yeah, I mean, that's that's 10. Well, it's about 15 hours of commitment. And then there's some homework between the sessions to consolidate. And people yep. think oh, that's a lot of effort. There is still the micro class, um, mm-hmm. which I know people can get uh, get uh, something through you, Jason, for that. So yep, absolutely. you can yeah. uh, send some some people rather put that on the Facebook link, put that uh, through, or or I can come up with a session for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, and we're getting, we're starting to have all those conversations. We're starting to get the tech students asking about doing tech and it's pretty much required. We're trying to figure out how to mandate it because it's, uh, some of them have the book already and have read the book and we have nice long conversations. Some people are like, uh, I kind of read the blog, but I'm a little clueless here. And, and some doing the micro class and it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta streamline this somehow and figure out how we're going to do it. So uh, some people did it years ago and now they're coming back going, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, which is all good. But yeah, go um, and
1: refresh it because, again, yep. they get to keep access to it as well. So. Right. Um, yeah. And I we think.
0: Uh, yeah. Go. We use the debrief for like everything. So my scientific divers use debrief and, and it's just we use it for our professional training and for when we when we teach classes every single night, we debrief off of them. So, yeah, same. Thing. Great to hear. That's yeah. all, it's
1: all about learning yeah
0: exactly um so let's see here. which brings us nicely uh, onto this yes <laughs> so chris says hello i want to give him a little shout out lisa says hello hi lisa um both some locals um yeah everybody's oh now everybody's hey, starting to show up yeah matt glass is here now now all the yahoos are starting to show up i see what we got there going we go. that's, on that's, here
1: that's, that's a big one <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. so coming Does in that sh- mean that I need to get a little shot glass and a bottle of whiskey then?
0: You probably do. Yeah, Matt, okay, showing well, up. Okay, well, I'll go Matt and do will. that.
1: Matt. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep talking while uh, I'll go and get a glass so <laughs> I can I can talk with a headphone. go. Back on the table. Back in a sec. Mm-mm-mm-mm.
0: There, Matt. I'll grab this one. I, I can only have a little, tiny. I can only have a wee dram because I got to do stuff later on. But wee dram. So there we go. Guys. It's a uh,
1: some Dalwhinnie, fifteen year old. So very nice. There we go. Excellent. Right. All
0: right. So, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so. Uh, If only. Uh, We've been talking a lot about incidences. Uh, I know it's coming up a lot in a lot of different areas. I know um, Great Type Podcast has been two weeks of incident reports and stuff like Mm. that and going through stuff. Um, So uh, let's talk about how If Only came about. And we'll start there at the very beginning.
1: Yeah. So um, I can't remember that I covered it on my own when I was here the last time. And the reason why I go on this is because it it's, it framed my interest in this sort of the safety process. So I certified in 99 in Greece while I was on holiday. Um, and my final certifying dive in open water, uh, I finished the dive, filling in my logbook. And the instructor said, "Now you can't write 24 meters. You're only allowed to go to 18 meters because that's what, uh, um, that's what we're allowed to do on the class. And I'm like, but we dived to 24? Yeah, yeah, well, we did that because there wasn't anything to see at 18 meters. So we took it down to 24 okay, fine. Uh-huh. So didn't know any better. Four, five years later, I go to South Africa with work and uh, we go to a dive center in Gansby, um, which is near Cape Town, but uh, an hour or so out of Cape Town. And, um, you know, they sort of checked her cards and, and that was it really. And, and no real sort of check of equipment. We jumped in, swam around in sort of 10, 15 meters of water. And it was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, uh-huh. clueless about what I was doing. Uh, a month later, I go to San Diego and on the Saturday, so I'm still open water, and this would be my be about my sixth, so sixth, seventh, and eighth dives. Um, I end up uh, on uh, out, I think it's Catalina Island, uh, with a dive master, a guide, which showing me around was fantastic. On the Sunday, there were no open water dives available. So we ended up, um, I managed to persuade the dive site, dive shop owner to um you know i end up having to sign extra waiver forms but we end up going out to the yukon and i think the ruby e were the uh the two wrecks out on wreck alley both 100 foot dives i'm still an open water diver limited to 60 feet um and so it's like yeah yeah i i don't know any different um and as i went down the shot line i got no buoyancy control in my bcd um i was trying to squirt gas in and there's there's nothing going in and like "Uh, this isn't quite right but I'm aware that the bottom is it's a hard deck at about 110, 120 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not a major issue. So hit the sand and we sort stuff out and realized that the low pressure inflator hose, the collar had popped off the, the, the nipple slightly and it looked like it was on. Uh, and there was a little bit of gas, but actually it, it wasn't there. So we sorted things out and I ascended and we did another 100 foot dive uh, that day as well. And, you know, completely oblivious to the risks that I was taking at the time. And I got back to the UK, wanted to get more into diving. And I fell in with the the, the wrong crowd, the GUE crowd in the UK. And, and since then, so since 2006 is when I did my fundamentals and then tech one and then tech two uh, successive years. And I was diving most weekends at that stage as well. So that's that at that sort of time is when i got interested in aviation and human while i was going through a master's degree where we had some human factors work and recognized that we need to be doing more in terms of effective incident investigation um, applying human factors knowledge to the training programs we do to better understand the failures and generally it didn't go down well i you know the work that i was doing because It highlights failures further back up the system. Um, One of the key things that comes out that I've seen in the the diving incident reports is this bit as Petard de Noble describes the proximal cause. It's that bit that happens in the five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe an hour prior to the dive um, or the, you know, the the, the fatality. That's what people jump up and down on and go, and this is the reason why it happened. And uh, consistently getting frustrated with this uh, and that's why i put the sort of programs together now in may 2018 when brian died um, the reports were up um, and then ashley put up a, a fantastic open report and it's still available on the uh, scuba accidents risk management uh, tools facebook group um, which was the the public released report from ashley and from DiveSoft to talk about what happened on that dive and uh, why Brian ended up diving. And I read this and I thought, wow, this is the first time that I have seen somebody involved that has shared everything that's gone on Uh, and the mistakes that were made. And it was just like, okay, this is probably somebody who's very open to learning for this. And, And I left it for probably six months or so. And then I made a contact um, through a, a mutual friend of ours. And I said, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. Um, I'd like you to look at a film called Just a Routine Operation, which was it's about an eight or a nine-minute clip um, by a guy called Martin Bromley. Um, and it's probably about 10 years old now, um, in which he was um, an airline pilot. He still is and his wife was taken to hospital for a routine operation and she was going to have the general anesthetic um so they put her under and then they couldn't intubate her and they couldn't ventilate her and it's at one point there were three anesthetists or anesthesiologists i think is what you call them across your side of the pond (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) and they're, they're trying to intubate her they're trying to get um you know some way of getting Breathable gas into her lungs, and her throat had had collapsed, so they couldn't get this happening. Um, and this went on for quite a few minutes. And, and in the meantime, there are nurses coming in and going, "Do you need a help? Because this doesn't look like it's going well." You know, we can prep an ICU bed. No, 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 it's okay. We, we've got it under control. Uh, and they went, oh, "Okay, fine." And and they cancelled the beds that they got. You know, the bed set up for this, and after something like 20 minutes of not having a breathable gas going in, um, and her blood saturation levels were really low, they all went, "Uh, well, we probably just, what we should do is just get her out, put her in recovery, and we'll wake her up. And um, they couldn't wake her up. And in three days afterwards, Martin gave the permission to switch the life support machine off, um, because she just suffered massive brain damage And so in the sort of period after that, he he went to the hospital staff and said, so I presume there's going to be an investigation so that we can learn from this and and prevent something happening again. No, it's, it's just one of those things. Well, it's not just one of those things. You know, my background is aviation. If something goes wrong, even a minor event, we look at these things from a technical perspective. We look at it from a social perspective. We look at it from a human factors perspective so that we can understand how it made sense for those people to do what they did. so I sent this link off to to Ashley um, and then it went quiet for a bit um, and I know that she was having you know some real struggles uh, with three small children and, and and being widowed and then in the probably about the March April time maybe May that that sort of you know the, the first quarter of last year made contact again um and said you know have you had any more thoughts about this um and she said yes I want to do something about it and I said okay this is what I would like to do in terms of run a documentary put a documentary together with you and the dive team and we'll interview we'll tell a story we'll tell a context-rich story that starts from Brian's, you know, basically from where he started interest in diving, and and how he got interested in that, how the team came together, um, how the course was put together, um, and everything that happened right up until the point that uh, that he jumped off the boat. And, and we, we met. Um, so it took us it took us about a month or so to sort out a date that we could have because um, somebody was still serving, Tim's still serving. John is still serving as well, but he's so Tim was in Hawaii. Uh, John is in uh, DC. Um, Ashley is in Washington State. And Barbara was down in Cuba. So, and I'm in the UK. And JP Bresser, who was a videographer that I approached and said, Look, you know, can we put this together? Uh, he's based in the Netherlands. So it's like, right, let's uh-huh. stick a date in the in the diary uh-huh. in November. And uh, we locked the dates in, we got the flights booked um and then uh then we we sort started putting the script together um and that was really interesting you know my idea of how it was going to work um you know that whole thing that um what is it pl- plans are useless planning is essential mm-hmm. so i come up with this and this is what it's going to look like and <laughs> you know went through it all and said like, yeah okay i reckon we do this and you know i i put some ideas together and I wrote out what I was going to do because I wanted to script what I was going to say um, and then stitch that in and out of the face to camera work. And um, we sat down. So I flew out there on the Thursday, the 18th of November, somewhere around there anyway, third week in November. And uh, we met uh, some of the people on the Friday uh, and then on the Saturday, we got everybody from the dive team and Ashley um, and a couple of friends in to talk through the day to well, in fact the day and everything that had happened before. And then basically it was gonna be a case of storyboarding how stuff happened so that we've got an idea of what was gonna happen next over the next few days um, and what we were expecting people to talk about. And that was the first time that the team had come together since the accident so 18 months before uh so there was understandably a lot of emotion uh-huh. um, and a lot of tears including mine we just sit there and going holy shit, this is uh-huh. just brutal um, and just such a powerful thing and trying to write notes and and work out how to, to to do things so by the end of the saturday we got an idea of what the next uh three days were going to look like because i was flying home on the thursday morning so i was in fact on the wednesday night so i was only out there for five six days so the sunday we uh set up and did face to camera interviews with three dive team members um and then on the sunday so that was sunday and then on the monday we did a uh, a reenactment dive uh recreate you recreated the situation uh, and we were really lucky to have a, uh, a local guy who was diving at same rebreather to basically stand in as Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created the scenes that were going on there as best we could. It was a different boat to the one we were that they used uh, on the, in 2018, um, and so we we set that up, uh, and then we went off and did a memorial dive as well. And Ashley had created a, a living memorial with. Brian's ashes um, which is near to the uh, where, where Brian died so we went and did a, a dive and we came back and we paid a respect to the memorial uh, and then we uh, we came back in and then the Tuesday we did a bit more face to camera work and we did some environmental work as well and the same thing on the Wednesday and then I flew home that night um, and then we ended up with a shed load of video and a shed load of stills and then I spent probably about two or three days taking all of that in low res. I, I converted it into low res format. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> these were, the, yeah, these were all, I think, 4K shots uh-huh. that uh, the JP had done. And it was like, oh my God, this is just a nightmare. So put it all into low res um, and then spent all that time listening to all of the shots. Loading them into, I used Camtasia um, to edit the the, the footage. And I basically sliced stuff up uh, and then sent this stuff over to JP and said, here you go, mate. There's about 60 or 70 um, pieces that you're going to have to stitch together. Um, And he's like, what? Um, (laughs) I went, you're the professional. Uh, Make it happen. So uh, there were some bits that uh, I had to reshoot because the sound didn't work. Um, yep. And uh, and that's where there's some shots where there's sort of sunlit uh, area, which was shot in Minneapolis early this year, actually just really? before the lockdown. So I was working with a, um, a paramedic team, heli med team, an airline, sorry, a flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Would you call them uh, lifeline team? Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, yeah, I reshot some of the stuff there, and uh, and then we had a a team viewing at the end of April. Uh, And that was the sort of the first cut. uh, And we basically got a a session like this together. Um, We played the video and then uh, got together afterwards and then talked about how we could make it better um, and then had some sort of test screenings with people. And um, it was, you know, some of the comments that came back said, really good, it's a bit long, it's 34 minutes, can you cut it down to about 25? And it's like, okay, what do I cut out? uh i don't know all right then (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was really really good uh and so yeah it went live on um on wednesday night Uh, um so that's been it's been fantastic the response and just the courage of the team of ashley and the team to talk about such a traumatic event and i think that's one of the bits that people who I've spoken to who've been involved in fatalities, the trauma that is left behind. This often said bit that, well, it's my choice. It's my life. I can do what I like. If I die doing what I love doing, well, it's only me that loses. And you sit there and go, you selfish sod. Uh-huh. There is, There are so many other people impacted. Um, there is your family. There are your friends. There are the people that are on the boat or the shore dive or the cave that have got to come and rescue you or recover you from that situation. And I know in your daytime job, you know, the this trauma that's involved in dealing with some brutal situations. That just doesn't go away. And and I don't know, do you get access to uh, PTSD? Try, um, so... Yeah. So essentially that's one of the things
0: that it, it's a little bit different. So we have complete access. If if we need help, we've got help. But you go to work every day with the people who are experiencing the same thing. So you get to sit down and chat and debrief yeah. with each other, like, boy, that was hard. I can't believe yeah. what we went through last week, or you talk to them afterwards, or you go out and have a pint and you just discuss, you know, quietly with not violating the HIPAA or anything like that. But you just are like, I, you know, I, I don't know what could we have done differently. And but with the diving type stuff, and I think this is so unique that Ashley did what mm. she did and releasing all the dive soft stuff and everything. It's just like we don't get that in the dive industry. People experience something either a near miss or or a fatality or, or something on those lines. and They never actually get to debrief unless they have someone to have confidence in and they, they talk. Yeah. And it's we don't have a system for that PTSD. And you see instructors that just disappear for a while or they just don't want to talk about it under multiple things like, Hey, I can't talk about this because it hasn't been seven years and they still could sue me. Like, yeah, but, but you, you, I can see your behaviors change. So it's affecting you. Do you want to talk about it? No, I can't like, all right. All right. But what Ashley did is just completely amazing that we could get all this out of this.
1: Yeah. 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 And it's good. And you know, the, the, one of the comments that I just read this evening is, you know, to be able to tell a story that is so, Heartbreaking on one side, and so enlightening and revealing on the other, um, mm. was was really my ultimate goal. Is is this bit that says, you know, accidents are not just that that proximal cause that that last five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever it is, that they are subject of a number of factors that come together, and th- this thing called emergence that you create something new that you weren't expecting to happen. And the difficulty with emergence or convergence is that you could have almost a 95% solution previously and you wouldn't have got the same outcome. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's one of the bits of pickup in the film is that you know two weeks beforehand, Brian had made almost exactly the same mistake and entered the water with the unit still in surface mode. Um, and I don't know. I hadn't gone back through the logs to find out the reasons why that was the case, but in this case, his oxygen cylinder was turned on, and so when he descended to one and a half meters, the the sort of the fail safely system kicks in and switches it over to dive mode and then pr- provides more oxygen than than you know that he needs. Um, so it could almost have been exactly the same situation two weeks prior, um, and this is the the other downside of. Of fatalities, and whilst Ashley has, has released this information, it's fantastic, you can't ask Brian how it made sense. Mm-hmm. And this is this huge push that I'm trying to get is, and I totally get the, the the challenges in doing so, but if we can talk about the near misses, we can try to explore that local rationality. How did it make sense to that person at the time? What was going through their mind? What sort of pressures were they under? What sort of training have they had? What have they been taught in the past? I I ran a session a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, and I said to the guy, you know, they had a problem doing some bailout drills from depth, and uh, one of them had a a rapid ascent um, from about 200 feet. And I said, when was the last time you did a live bailout ascent? I went, hmm, probably the last time we did our course. And how long was that ago? about 18 months two years ago and you sit there going and i know why people don't do that it's mm-hmm. because it trashes a dive it costs you money because now you've got to fill up your open circuit bailout uh-huh. cylinders um and they may not be in tests so you've got to go and get them retested before you can go and get them refilled um you know the cylinders stay there they're not leaking gas anywhere so um. why do i need to to practice this and it's this bit that says okay When you bail out for real, it's probably because the proverbials hit the fan and your brain is working really, really hard to work out what is going on. And if you can't remember the sequence of actions about what you need to do, like making sure that you close the loop uh, and you don't flood the the, the loopers accordingly um, and making sure that the gases are all, you know, all of the stuff that you do on a training course to prove, to demonstrate that you've got the skills. They're like any other skills; they fade. Um, so it's it's understanding that uh, that process. And I forgot where I was going now with that, uh, <laughs> that conversation. Now. Um, so yeah, just the, the, that ability to tell the story um, with everything that's going on, and which is why fatalities are, are not a particularly great way of learning. A because we don't normally get the raft of information we've got in this case, but also because we can't have the conversations with those people and. The, the the double-edged sword um, and it's on a thing I put recently that you know social media is a great tool that allows us to share information really quickly mm-hmm. but it is also a really bad tool because it allows people without knowledge of what really happened to throw metaphorical rocks at people for being stupid and yet they will have made the same cognitive errors like a slip, a lapse, mistake, or a violation, which are just things that we do lots of the time on the surface or, you know, not related to diving, but we don't think we make those same mistakes when we go diving or when we're on a dive. And why would that be the case? Our brain's wired the same way. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. All the experience does is it it reduces the likelihood that you're going to make a, a skill-based mistake on maybe a knowledge-based mistake. But if you're distracted or you've met a novel environment before, you've probably got the same level of problem-solving skills as a novice does. Um, so it's about that ability to tell stories so that everybody else can learn.
0: My yeah. blocking, so. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Um, near, I mean, near misses are so important when it comes to the whole grand scheme of everything. Um, I mean that near misses are going to save near miss reporting saves lives. It just is. It's just how that works. Um, I there's a comment here that I actually disagree with. Um, I think you are awesome, Ashley, because you have actually made this whole thing happen. The only reason we can have this conversation is because you shared what you did. So I disagree. And I say that you are awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know whether Gareth agrees or not, but that's my Well, take we, we've had thing.
1: conversations before, Ashley, and we've already talked about this, that you know, the sort of the bravery that's involved um, to be able to do this is, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I got described as being an enigma the other day and I would say that you are too. So <laughs> thank you, Ashley. Nice. Uh, <laughs> she says she'll accept that, but
0: yes, Ashley, yeah. thank you so much. Um, so going into, I mean, l- looking at it from the surface, it was turned into surface mode and auction was off, which were the two you know, big things, but so much leads up to that, which is all near miss type of stuff. Um if yeah, anybody's so familiar, I, I, you, know, you know,
1: I can work backwards, you know, because it's, it's one I did with uh, with Chantel on Thursday night with the dynamic mm-hmm. one was, you know, this bit that people focus on the option cylinder wasn't turned on. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. That's one thing. Right. Uh, and the, the rebreather was in surface mode, but there is a fail safe mechanism that allows you to go dive mode uh, and ups the PO2. And then you sit there and go, okay, so um, in the, looking at the logs, um, he'd started his checklist, the the, the handset-driven checklist, at around seven twelve, and it shut itself off at about seven twenty-five. And whether or not that was manually shut off, or whether or not it timed out, it, it's not clear from from the system log uh, whether or not that's the case. Um, and we, the, because there's no high pressure feed sensor you can't say when the oxygen cylinder was uh, was isolated as well. But Brian had been taught to isolate his oxygen on his rebreather by his instructor. And people go, why would you do that? So, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, you have constant mass flow rebreathers, which constantly mm-hmm. trickle oxygen into the loop. Uh, so you want to isolate that. And the other one is, and I know somebody who's fallen foul of this from a diluent cylinder, um, was that they prep their gear, they put it on the boat, Um, and then they ratchet strap the rebreather down uh, as because they were going off and you can see what's gonna happen next (laughs) is the MAV, the manual ad that's on the counter lung gets pressurized and uh, on the two hour transit out to the dive site, um, the the MAV's been pressed in, the overpressure valve is doing what it's supposed to do, um, which is to let gas out. So um, he put the rebreather on and he thought it's a bit odd that the lungs are quite full, which I wasn't expecting didn't check the gas because he's already done, you know, his sort of prep stuff beforehand. He's got full cylinders and he's going down the shot line and he gets to about sort of 50 feet. And it's like, "Ah, (laughs) oh, the diluent's empty, right? Bail out and go back up again. So I can see why that can be a, you know, a reason to do. So, so the oxygen was turned off. Um, So at 725, the handset turns itself off. And when you turn it back on again, it defaults back into surface mode. Um, and so, you know, the way that your memory works is you sit there and go, well, I configured it 10 or 15 minutes ago. It's going to be in the same state. Why would it be any different than what uh-huh. it was before? So put it on. Uh, and now you've got um, uh, the sort of head display system, and you've also got handset buzzers, and there's also a buddy light. Uh, on this particular rebreather um, it's and because it's in surface mode it's not tracking the po2 within the loop because it's not required to do that um, but the, the leds are working and in the workbook that i put together which is available on the link that's uh, that's further back up i got um, a rebreather instructor on this unit to take photos of what the head of display looks like in broad daylight in bright sunlight and Uh, These were screen grabs from a video, and it only came out because as he approached the rebreather, I could only just see the LEDs blinking to show that it was a low PO2 situation. And it wasn't until he moved his hand and created a shadow could you actually see the the red LEDs flashing. So from a design point of view, you're in a situation that says we can't have the LEDs so bright in the water because now they're going to be blinding because... It's dark, especially when you go cave diving. Uh-huh. But at the same time, you need them to be bright enough that you can see them on the surface, or uh, or while you're you know bobbing on the surface and also getting prepared. So that's you know so the the unit was um, doing what it was supposed to do. Uh-huh. So then we go back. Okay, so why was he distracted? Well, it was a warm day. Uh, he was the only one I think in the team wearing a, a dry suit. Uh, it was a hot day so you know putting that on when he first got in the boat um and now you start to overheat you've got these sort of self-induced pressures that says look I'm getting warm I've got to get off the the boat and cool down so you're in this situation right I'm going to get that done um he's also distracted with a camera um which uh, you know was was allowed um there's nothing forbidding cameras for students and actually for a I think there's only about two or three of the agencies because I did some sort of ringing around and finding out, you know, do agencies prohibit students from taking cameras on classes? And the majority of agencies don't have anything in their standards that say you can't take a camera. So, you know, there's no violation there, but it's not good practice because if you're going to be a student on a, especially a rebreather class, you want to be paying attention to what's going on. But there are also pressures that you know not necessarily explicit that that had to happen on that dive but to collect media for the shop that he was working through which is also the instructor was you know that same shop so there is an you know a, um a, a want to do something there as well so there's distractions that prevented him from seeing the warning lights that were going on so that's in the sort of the, the 45 50 minutes prior to uh, the dive itself and then the discussion that happened with Ashley two nights before um, and, and this is the what was um, the really interesting thing while we were doing the filming is that people forget dates and days well they forget they remember dates but not necessarily days because they don't have a significance and so we're having these sort of discussions and saying you know when did certain things happen. So there's the discussion between um, uh, the sea state. Um, Eric, I think it was pretty calm. Uh, there was a current running, but it, I think it was pretty flat. So you know, a couple of nights before the discussion with Ashley, after Brian had come home from the um, uh, the dive shop, where they were supposed to get everything sorted, and the plan changed again and again uh and and brian said look actually i'm just gonna knock this on the head i'm not gonna carry on with this course and and actually you know the, dis- the description and, and discussion that's in the film of saying no just just make it happen it's only one more dive we can resolve the situation after that you know we can work out what we're going to do next you know with all the frustrations and that, that were going on at that stage It's only one more dive, and that's all you need to do. So there would have been self-induced pressures to get that dive done and complete that dive so that then everything, you know, a line was drawn under it. And then we go back on the Tuesday where they were working with the initial instructor for the class. And that instructor had said, you haven't got enough hours to complete the next level in this training program. And their training program was a sort of, whilst it was made up of recognized agency modules it was a long 22 week that was what it was originally planned as nice. multiple classes that were bolted together under the umbrella of, of a big program so on the, the tuesday prior to the the the, uh, the dive on uh, on the 20th um that instructor turned around and said you haven't got enough hours i'm not going to teach you the class and the shop owner said well, I'll teach it um, and that then sort of carried through so and at that stage as well it was a, a new environment for one of the team members because they'd never dived with this instructor before so trying to build those dynamics and a number of sessions I've done recently about instructors are leaders um, you may not realize it but you have a team of students who are your you know your followers you are the leader and they are your followers and you will have an influence over them um, both in the training environment, outside the training environment. And if you don't walk the talk outside of the training environment, they will pick up on that and go, aha, you do that, you're uh-huh. cutting the corners. That means that you trained me, you're cutting the corners, and I can cut those corners too. Yep. Um, and so that sort of get that sort of influence happens. So the The bit that I've been talking with with instructors about becoming better leaders is understanding team dynamics. When you are coming together as an initial team, you need to be more autocratic and you need to um, be more directive and give people the confidence about what needs to be done. But as the team evolves, what your ultimate goal should be is that by the time you get to the end of the class, and if it's a team that's come together, or if it's if it's a you know I'm biased I'm a GUE environment GUE um, graduate from classes, uh-huh. um, the team is really strong there. And we we're normally going to classes together, um, so that by the end of the class you're able to operate as a almost a self-sufficient class on your own. And so your experience dives should be almost hands off by the instructor. And you get the students to brief their dive, plan it, brief it, execute it, and then debrief it so that we teach people how to do the plan, brief, execute, and debrief as a team. We shouldn't be surprised that people don't debrief dives if we haven't taught them how to debrief. Mm -hmm. And that debriefing really allows the learning to, to happen. Yeah. So that's the Tuesday. There's a lot of frustrations because we keep on changing the plan. Uh, the gas changes were on the Thursday when they realized they hadn't got enough gas to do all of the st- cylinders that they'd originally planned. So on the Friday, there was a whole bunch of replanning as well. Um, and then all of the stuff prior to that, where they were trying to reschedule this class so many times, but because they're all serving forces members trying to get everybody to come together at the same time to do the class became really difficult and and frustrations were high at that stage as well so there was a point that um erica put you know additional task loading mental states definitely if you are um if you are in a if you're not in a good place and you're thinking about a whole bunch of other things then you're not likely to be concentrating on the activity and and i can think of two example an example involved nearly crashing twice i was uh, i was in a staff officer job in, in the, the royal air force um we were supposed to release a software program um at the end of this week uh or the week um on on the monday i went down to the software vendor uh, to get the final this is what we're going to do and we were going to start doing our training at the end of the week and the guys went nah, It's not ready. It's not going to be ready for probably another four to six weeks. And I would got, you know, I was uh, an Air Force captain, the equivalent of. um, And I would got my full colonel. In fact, my one star had said, right, this is going to happen. You know, and, and there's a lot of money committed to this. And I was driving back from this software vendor and I nearly crashed twice because I was thinking, how the hell do I tell this one star? that we now delayed our program and, and all of this knock-on effect. And, and there's me as this lowly captain going, shoot, talk <laughs> go uh-huh. and, and I say twice, I nearly ran into the back of other cars at junctions because I wasn't paying attention. And you sit there going, really? And I got in the following morning, and I spoke. And he went, yeah, OK, fine. It's a delay. and I'm yeah. like, Phew. So all the worry that I had was completely baseless. But that didn't stop my own mental state being in, in the wrong place. Uh-huh. Um, and I think people forget how much our, our brains just shortcut when when we're in that state. So expecting people to be logical when they're under significant stress is hugely flawed. Yeah. And that's really the responsibility then of, of the instructor, the leader, to manage that that cultural psychological environment, social environment to say, right. We can thumb this dive at any time. It does not matter if we're not in the right place. We'll knock it on the head, and I, as the instructor, will sort out all of the other paperwork and everything else that goes on uh, from that perspective. But it, it, it becomes, you know, that's what the leader's job should be: is to protect the followers from the environment that's going on, and that is, you know, an instructor's role to make sure that the students' heads are in the right place before you go diving, because they're gonna be stressed enough passing the class or trying mm-hmm. to pass the class, let alone everything else that's going on.
0: Yeah, you have so many external pressures on, on so many different levels and, and trying to figure out like in the medical field, using a timeout to make sure that everything's correct or you know, close-up communication sometimes can even you get the feedback from somebody and you realize that maybe we need to take a look at this differently. So, and um, that foundations course that I wrote, it, we do the teach the debrief completely from day one and they're expected to run it by their themselves by the end and we participate, but the students are expected to, awesome. to do that. So um, I wanna talk about, let me throw it up here really quick uh, but, but I had to stream. We're small, but this is the, uh, it's just the cover of the mm-hmm. if only workbook. So, uh, we'll get back into the story, but I want to make sure we, we throw this in there. Cause you had mentioned it while, while you were hmm. talking. Um, this is not a work. Like, um, I don't know if it's different for, for you guys in the UK, but we hear workbook in the U S and we think that there's a bunch of questions and like li- little lines that you write on and then you get nothing <laughs> out of it. Like that, that's how we watch like videos in, in high school and stuff. Like, Oh, I've got my movie workbook. This is great. Like, it's just questions that I have to write down what happened in the movie. Um, And to be all in all honesty, that's what I thought when you sent it. And I was like, oh boy, okay. Um, I'll take a look at it. Uh, I'd missed the email first, but then I downloaded it and looked at it and I was like, my God, this is actually like really, really good. Uh, It's very different from that. Can you kind of explain what yeah, sure. Is that you made? Because I think it's invaluable for for maybe watching I re- it. should
1: re maybe I should retitle it as something like a field guide. Yes. Um, or a, or a facilitator's guide. Yeah. or something like that. So because it has instructional stuff, information, and like
0: student-based stuff, so it's completely different than what people are going to think it is.
1: Yeah. So the the goal of this was there is so much stuff that we even. When, when we were putting the video together, one of the challenges was, how do you bring the learning points out? Because there are so many of them there. And in fact, in the about 18 minutes of narrative of the face to camera of Ashley and the team, I picked out about 53 contributory and causal factors that are, that are there. And there's no way that we could put that into a way in a film without distracting people, which is why there are captions that that bring um, some of this to life. And and I I thank the the sort of review team for saying, these are little things that we can pull out. Um, And and it was great to, to put those in so that people are aware as they watch the film. But the goal of the workbook was that this film in itself is a learning experience, but the difficulty with anything like this is, what do you do with it? You've watched this film, and you go, wow, there's a whole bunch of learning there. And then you go, what? What, What's the learning that I can take out of this, especially if I'm an instructor? Because a lot of the big topics, like make sure you use checklists, don't rush, use proper communication, have great questioning technique, they're already taught. So why are these things failing? So the idea of, of the workbook was to provide an overview of what happened on on the dive and and leading up to it, um, to provide the the causal and contributory factors that I was talking about, um, to provide a little bit more insight into the rebreather aspects of this uh, in terms of the head up display, the buddy light, uh, the logs, the dive logs, and then to provide facilitator's questions so that you as an instructor or a dive center manager or a dive safety supervisor or a dive safety officer, you can sit down with your dive team and you can say, right, here's here's a, a summary narrative and it's a really simplistic narrative and it's the sort of thing that you would hear in uh, or read in a, um, uh, I'm just gonna pull it up now and read it out in an accident, a typical accident report. And that, you know, the narrative that's given to the facilitators readout is Diver X was on a closed circuit rebreather training dive, uh, diver training course. They were with an instructor and three other divers on a boat and they were planning to dive on a wreck in approximately 35, 40 meters, 115, 135 feet of water. They're using a GATS mix which had breathable trimix on the surface. Diver X entered the water without their oxygen cylinder turned on, turned on. They went hypoxic shortly afterwards, passed out and sank. They were recovered from the bottom, but died despite CPR being carried out. And that's the sort of thing that you would normally read somewhere. And what I asked then, you know, the facilitator, giving them the information and the skills, the, 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 the guidance really is: okay, let's let's do a what if, you know, what happened? Let's do a a counterfactual what you know what do you think happened what should have happened what could have happened what would you have done and write all of those things on a whiteboard so that you get the audience to think about what are the things that are there and then you know ask the question so is someone to blame because that's always the first bit you know whose fault was it Uh um so and then you go right if so whose was it and then play the video and play the first sort of 25 minutes of the video, which then ends with the last of the sort of the team narratives and Ashley summing up what had happened and and, and the reasons behind it. And then the facilitator says, okay, now you've got a very different story. What do you think the reasons that the accident happened now are? And write those on the board in a different color. And then, once they've done that, explore some of those and why they think that's the case, and then play the remaining sort of eight minutes, nine minutes of the film, which is where I end up providing a narrative to explain what's happened, and and the human factors perspective, um, and then go back and say, okay, for a third time, what do you think the reasons that the accident happened? So that's a sort of a, a 60 to 90 minute workshop which people can run themselves because all the information they need to run this workshop is in the film and it's in the workbook that I've produced and then the latter half of the document is for some more theory which looks at just culture and psychological safety and situation awareness and decision making teamwork and leadership and provides facilitator questions for for, again to expand the workshop so if you're inclined and you've got a grasp of these knowledge and, you know, all of the information's in this workbook for you, Um, you can run a a three or a four hour workshop that uses this film as a learning experience. Uh And that was really the goal for this is to say, how can we learn more than just watching a film, albeit powerful and emotive and informative, but actually it's about getting people to think in a reflective manner and almost ask the questions. So, how close were you? And with something similar, or have you encountered situations where you're unable to speak up, or you wished you'd been thumb a dive, but you couldn't? And explore those those bits. So. Um, Thank you for the feedback, Jason. That's something yeah. that I will do. <laughs> I will change <laughs> I mean, it to a, a field guide. No, it's great. Yeah, I mean, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs>
0: then that, that, that's exactly, like when I first looked at it, I'm like really $10 for the, uh, okay, I'm gonna answer some <laughs> questions like, oh, reflect on how you felt when, like those are the normal workbooks we see and um, going through and I mean, timestamps for for every single portion, I'm flipping through it now, but like timestamps through the, through the show or through the entire uh, documentary and saying, okay, um, these are the different things that you, um, you know, organizational factors, supervisory failures and going to the Swiss cheese model and all that. But um, going through all those different things is invaluable and, and and it really changes kind of how you see the see the video and the feedback you're getting from it. And then, like you said, the using it as a, uh, a seminar prior to. to Tactical rebreather training is an amazing tool in general. Um, hmm.
1: um, yeah, just seen that from Brock. Yeah, that's good.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Brock just grabbed it. It, it is. I posted the link up here. I mean, it is. It like I said, I. I initially, I'm as skeptical as everybody else. Like, all right, 10 bucks for a workbook. You got to be kidding me. And then looking at it, I go, yeah, it's worth uh, at least 10 bucks. Like that is definitely (laughs) priced accordingly. Um, And
1: language becomes so important. So uh thank you for bringing
0: that up and feedback. So thank you, Jason. (laughs) I will change that. Um, So... What uh, what should people do going from here with all of this? I mean, there's there's so much in there, and we, we there's not going to be time. Like you said, we could spend three or four hours on here and, and going through every <laughs> single little piece of it. And I enjoy spending time with you always. But um, yeah. what should people do going from here uh, with the information besides just the workbook?
1: So the bit that I would I, I get asked this right, you've given us some information. What do we do with it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think there are, there are two. I'll start with two key things, really. One is try not to be judgmental when you see something going wrong. And I know that is hard, and we are hardwired to jump to um, the the shortcut conclusions. Um, We look for simple answers, and accidents are anything but. And if you want to grab the latest blog, actually, Jason, that outcomes are sexy and attractive, Um, yeah, Brock, don't forget the debrief. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) that'll be three things. Um, the the other thing is that ability to tell a context, rich story from a near miss Uh, fatalities are that they provide learning as long as the information is available and often it's not. Um, so serious injuries provide information but they're probably gonna be subject to some sort of litigation. So the ability to find out what's going on there is pretty slim. So let's look at the the medium severity or the minor near misses and start to create the culture that says, let's talk about these, but don't focus on the outcomes. The, The outcomes are almost irrelevant when it comes to learning because if you stop time five seconds, and in fact, that's one of the activities in the book, asking the question, if you stop time five seconds before the accident happens, all of the learning opportunities are there. You don't have to have somebody die to create a learning environment or a learning opportunity. So, and and that means that we can be reflective and asking people how it made sense. And that's, you know, going back to the debrief bit, Brock, uh, for for the prompt there as well. Is every dive can be a learning dive, um, where we reflect on what's happened in in a structured manner that allows learning to carry on. And that's, so we
0: discussed that previously, but the the positive things on, on how hard it is once you start doing the debrief model to get people to you know before doing the debrief, there I did nothing wrong, and then you start using the debrief, and they're like I did nothing right, like no, like. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of right things. Let's talk about the right things. Just give me a, a thing you did right, and solidifying the correct things, and finding ways to mitigate the 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 things that need improvement. You know, that's yeah. that's so important. With debrief, debrief is uh, near miss reporting without people really realizing it. You know? Yeah,
1: definitely. And, so. and the, I think the next bit then is that's great because now you can learn in your team um, mm-hmm. from what's happened. The next step is the ability to share that learning across a wider community. Because I know that there will be people on the East Coast will make mistakes that are replicated on the West Coast or down in Mexico or in Caribbean or in the UK. Um, And it's that ability to say, how do we create that learning environment? And that starts with, I am fallible. I will make mistakes. How do I better myself so I don't make those mistakes? which goes back to the bit that says don't judge on outcomes or don't focus on outcomes, because if we focus on an outcome and we had a good outcome, but we don't look behind us and see the train wreck that's there, we think all is rosy.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and when you're external, don't focus just on the negative outcomes and, and that the harsher they are, that the worse we judge them. Let's look at the process to get there. Um, so be curious, don't forget the debrief and be curious. Yeah,
0: that's that is massively important. Um, we are right at our hour, so what I'm going to do is kind of say a couple of parting words to everybody. I'm going to pull you out of the stream, and then I will uh, come back on and say goodbye to you after I say my parting words to all done. That work for you? That works for me. All right. Well, thank, thank you I, very much, everybody. Yes, thanks, everybody. Um, and thank. Oh wait uh i don't know if you can answer this or not
1: uh as far as i know it closed down and that's just from uh from reading stuff so uh yeah yeah uh in fact i know it closed down because we drove past it gotcha did
0: did a dive soft not throw them under the bus in any way shape or form but dive soft change any of the stuff um it might be a little bit hard with ce and everything did they change any of the processes to fix any of that
1: um the answer is I don't honestly know okay. uh, in terms of the, of the timing out, um, but I can yeah. check um, yeah. um, and find out what that's the case. And, yeah. and I know, you know, there's a there's a thing from a point of view of you would like the thing to time out so it doesn't waste the batteries. Right. So, you know, if you're going to prep your boat and you prep your rebreather and then you've got a long ride out on a cold day on a cold boat right. and your batteries are just sitting there ticking away. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you could end up getting in the water with your battery just yep. about right, and then mm-hmm. it doesn't fire the solenoids. So, yeah. yeah, increased
0: brightness of LEDs on the surface. There's a lot of different things that could tweak, but then you got to go through CE, and it's not a fast process by any means, I'm sure. Or so, cheap. Yeah, or cheap at all. My God, it's so expensive. So, um, oh, yeah, matte glass is another small one. Um picked up the field guide too. appreciate all you're doing in this area of dive training. Nice. Thanks, Matt. Cool. Um, all right. So, uh, I will say goodbye to you now before everybody starts chattering on, I'll say goodbye to them and then I'll come back and and just close up with you. All right. Great.
1: Thanks for it, right. Jason.
0: Thank you, Gareth. Hey guys. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much again for joining us. Um, a couple of different things. Uh, if, you know, being able to do all these, these things for everybody, um, we do have, um, uh Patreon, I'm posting that link in here. Uh, any help is appreciated. Uh, and the more popular of the two uh is the glassware, the Adrama diving glassware. Um, as you guys have. Oh, I think a couple of you, I think Eric and uh and Matt both have them that are in here, and Chris Hamlock has them that's in here. Um these uh these glasses here have been selling like crazy, and it's a way to show off and tell people that uh you know more than they do, I guess. Ah, just kidding. Um, but so uh, I want to thank everybody for their time and any help is appreciated so we can keep doing these and expand. And like I said, there's a couple of things I'd like to do. So uh, thank you, share it. Uh, it's, on YouTube, uh, uh, it's on YouTube now and on Facebook. So thanks everybody. Uh, I really appreciate all of it. Take care guys.